Hi everyone, it's Andy Miller here, co-host of the Backlisted podcast, with another episode from our archive. I've been writing at length about Jean Rees for my next book, which I hope will be published next year. And to that end, I have been revisiting her novels, which I love and which are a source of inspiration to me. My favourite of these remains her fourth, Good Morning Midnight, first published in 1939, and, not coincidentally, the subject of this episode of Backlisted, only the second we made, sitting around the kitchen table of Unbound's old offices in Buckingham Gate in London. It's been interesting to listen to this recording from back in 2015 for several reasons. Firstly, it is my impression that Reese's stock has risen in the seven years since we made this show. I see her influence everywhere in contemporary fiction, and recently I've taken part in several events with Miranda Seymour, the author of a fine new biography of Reese entitled I Used to Live Here Once. Audiences have been both enthusiastic and large in number. It's amazing to think a hundred people will turn out on a chilly Friday night in February in Kent to learn more about a writer whose books were so unpopular in her lifetime she was believed to have died some 40 years before she actually did so. As Reese herself said on receipt of the W.H. Smith's prize for Wide Sargasso Sea, it has come too late. Secondly, the analysis of Reese's work offered here by our guest Linda Grant remains relevant, insightful, and important. Jean Reese was nobody's pet, and her work transcends whatever labels we may be tempted to place on it. Finally, it is both pleasing and slightly alarming that this episode is so good, not my words, but those of our current producer, Nikki Birch. I think you can hear how delighted John and I are that this thing, and remember, this is only the second time we'd ever got together to make one of these, that this thing is working. There's a real sense of enjoyment, discovery, and passion in our discussion which are all the things we hope Batlisted continues to deliver. This episode was produced by our original producer, Matt Hall, and features Matthew Clayton, who was with us for the first year or so of Batlisted, and is very much, therefore, the Michael Benteen of our goon show. I will leave listeners to decide which members of the current team are Spike Milligan, Harry Seacombe, or Peter Sellers. Anyway, thank you for listening. Let's now return to the Paris of 1935 and the London of 2015. And I will leave you with the epigraph of Reese's novel, Good Morning Midnight, taken by her from the work of Emily Dickinson. Good morning, midnight. I'm coming home. Day got tired of me. How could I of him? Sunshine was a sweet place. I liked to stay. But morn didn't want me now, so good night, day. Well, Morgan Clark is um, my favourite person in the world at the moment. Well, why not? I absolutely, I have a photograph of him. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, do you want to see a picture of him? I'd love that. Yeah. Um, it, it, hang it, on. It, it, you should make him your avatar on Twitter. That would really, that would really. Um, look, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at him just relaxing. What was it? Six-one against Southampton. Yeah, when he pointed, they said to him, How, "Is it true you've had a hair transplant?" He said, "Yeah, I think it looks really stylish." What do you think? <laughs> he's just shameless. Yeah, and, he love said, that. and then he said, "Somebody else, some other manager, had said." Um, I play football as poetry, and he said, I play football as heavy metal. Absolutely brilliant. He's fantastic. I love him. And all the Liverpool fans completely adore him. And look at the results. Yes, I know. I know. <laughs> love him. Love him. Hello, and welcome to Backlisted, the new podcast where old books get a new life. I'm John Mitchinson, and we're coming to you live from the kitchen table of Unbound, the website where readers and writers come together to produce great books. And I'm Andy Miller. I'm the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. We are the Levis and Butthead of reading as every week. It's up to you to decide 
which is which. And we're also going to be joined in the Baldrick role today by Mr. Matthew Clayton. Hello, Matthew. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, evening. Matthew. And uh, later on, we're going to be joined by uh, Linda Grant to talk about Jean Rhys and specifically Jean Rhys's novel, Good Morning Midnight. But first, as is traditional on Backlisted, John, what have you been reading? I've had a lovely week, Andy. I've had a a week of deliciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, It gets to this time of year, and uh, for those of you who are listening uh, in in September uh, 2019, I'm actually talking to you in, uh, in, in December 2015. And at a certain point of the year, you just want a book that is full of cold. I wanted a book that was full of coldness and bleached wood and, and, the, and, the, and the sound of, 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 of the sea on pebbles and just something that made me feel wintry. And I, I wondered a couple of weeks ago, I picked up Tove Janssen. I uh, say Tove. Le- I say Tove because I don't know how. Tove. Let me stop you there. Tove. Let me stop you there. I was informed by the great Will Grozier. A couple of oh days ago, Lord. that is Tuve, as in Duve. Tuve. Tuve Janssen. Tuve Janssen. Yeah. Well, I was reading Tuve Janssen's The Winter Book, which is an, just a beautiful, almost almost a perfect mm. uh, collection of stories by, uh, selected by Ali Smith, the great Ali Smith. Yeah. And um, I just, I've, I've just, I felt like I've, it's an amazing thing. It's it's a um, collection of stories which almost functions like an autobiography. They're, they're, I mean, it's fictional, yeah. but the stories themselves are kind of cumulative, and they go through a. I mean, it starts with a very small child and ends with an old woman railing against mm. the, the 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 kind of uh, the world. Uh, there's a fantastic story towards the end of the book about a squirrel, which she befriends, and um, it's it's it, it, it's one of those it, again. It's that thing about when you sometimes just need comfort reading. Yes. But strangely, um, and if I had the copy in front of me, but I'd left it on the tube, I would (laughs) be able to read magnificent passages of uh, loveliness. Well, they are drawn, the stories in the Winter Book are chronological, aren't they? And they're drawn from different points in her career. So she wrote um, several volumes of short stories, not all of which have been translated into English yet. Is it a book for adults or children? It's a book for adults, yeah. I mean, the thing about Tuve... Is that I I loved the of course she's most famous for writing the Moomin Troll books and the Moomin books. And I loved the Moomin books as a child, particularly the later ones, Moomin Papa at Sea and Moomin Valley in November. And I took the liberty of writing down this is the opening of Moomin Papa at Sea. This is the the book supposedly for children. It starts one afternoon at the end of August, Moomin Papa was walking about in his garden, feeling at a loss. He had no idea what to do with himself because it seemed everything there was to be done had already been done or was being done by somebody else. And I only as an adult, when I read it, I read it's a book about a midlife crisis. So so one of the weird things is that, as we'll see when we get to talk about Jean Rhys later, I hadn't planned it this way, but there's a weird resonance in that Mm. strange kind of slightly dislocated narrative voice that Tove Janssen has. Yeah. Which kind of does sort of fit with the the Gene Reese, uh, certainly the Gene Reese that we're going to talk about later. Well, I've I've very much the thing that I loved about her books as a child, which I still like about her work as an adult, either her writing for children or or for adults, is that unsentimental mixture of humour and melancholy and emotional realism, all of which you would find actually in Gene Reese without and, talking about Gene Reese too quickly. Also, but they're amazing, mad explosions of total invention so yeah one of the first stories in the book is about a child rolling a stone which is made from silver rolling and rolling and it's 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 very very intense and it in the end she drops the stone and the stone explodes and covers the whole of the neighborhood in silver that silver plates the neighborhood i agree this is kind of Nordic magic realism. I mean, a hitherto undiscovered, unthought of, <laughs> unremarked upon kind of genre. And I thought, yeah. how, how do you yeah. get, I mean, in my own case, how do I get to 52 and only discover Truvi Janssen's, I mean, yeah. I mean, the Moomin Trolls, we grew up with them. Yeah, but- yeah. I was reading about her this week. Apparently Moomin Troll, uh, uh, Moomin Papa at Sea and, and Moomin Valley in November were published in Finnish as adult books. 
Doesn't it's me. only in this country that they were published as children's books because she wanted to approach adult themes using characters that she had invented for children. But don't you think that was to do with the, the illustrations, which kind yeah. of put them firmly in there, which is an, is an interesting thing. I, I, mean, I guess, like, you know, it's a bit like Roald Dahl. There are, there are, there, I mean, you could publish Matilda almost as a, an adult yes, book. If yes, yes, very much. If you didn't have Quentin Blake's drawings. Yeah. I've been reading some of her adult books uh, this year, the summer book, which is a classic, really, The True Deceiver, and one called Sun City. It's a second novel that she wrote in English called Sun City. It's set in Florida. It had a, I had to buy a copy from a Florida library. It's incredibly rare. And I'd like to issue a public appeal to sort of books who have done a brilliant know, job, amazing job republishing her in the last 10 years, but have thus far ignored this book because presumably it's insufficiently Scandinavian. But it's absolutely wonderful. I mean, it is it, to see early 70s America and the life of old people in early 70s America through the eyes of somebody from a totally different world is really uh, remarkable. It's a terrific book. Actually, I thought it was going to be a coruscating kind of a... <laughs> <laughs> attack on South African casinos during the apartheid. No, it's just coincidental. <laughs> it's just a coincidence. Um, can I give it a... I mean, it's really... This is a cheesy marketing line, because as Andy knows, I, I, I can't resist a cheesy marketing line, but if Lyra Balakwa ever wrote short stories, they would read a lot <laughs> like, I think, that the stories in Turve Janssen's uh, winter book, and, and indeed the summer book. Just, she's just... It, it's It's... Fantastically, they're they're just odd, aren't they? In the yeah. same way, and we'll come on to Jean Reese. There's that that sort of that thing about writers who are odd. How do you do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you try to be odd, but there's that if you're really it's that thing you read a sentence and a sentence. I mean, as I say, the book is now somewhere on the circle line. I think, but the uh, lucky person who's going to pick that up. I'd like to yeah. also take the opportunity to re- recommend to all adult readers Moomin Valley in November which I reread quite recently. That's like a Bergman film. <laughs> it's like a, it's like, it's, like it's a, a children's film. book with about absence. There are yeah. no moomins in it. Yeah. All, all the and animals actually, arrive and all the moomins have gone. You're right to bring that up because I, when I think about these, I, reading these stories, I, I rem, I'm reminded of early Bergman, Summer with Monica. Yes. That kind of amazing, uh, strange, weird thing that, Basically, it's shit. The winter is shit, and then the summer is incredibly intense, and then there's a shit winter. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's you do get that sort of feeling that there's a lot of the stories in the in the winter book are about darkness and snow and ice and coldness, and but there also there's also wonderful things about it's a brilliant story about her her dad having a party and the mum not involving herself in the party, but the dad is basically just her dad brings a bunch of drunk mate rounds, mates round and they have a play on the balalaika and they have a they have a hoolie and the mum's job is to not interfere but to make sure there's plenty of pickled herring in the in the fridge so they can um, they can refresh themselves at various times it's it's about as joyful as it gets what are you reading this ah. weekend <laughs> i have been reading successfully from cover to cover a brief history of time by <laughs> professor stephen hawking Yes, I think I think that's utterly deserved. Thank um, you. Which is right up there, if I'm not wrong, along with 1984 as the most talked about, least read book of all time. <laughs> 1984? Apparently that's the book that most people lie about having read. Is it really? Can I tell you a terrible, terrible, dark secret? I have never read 1984. I've talked about it. I've never, just never read it. I did, it didn't come up. I've read it for you. No, Linda, Linda, <laughs> I've read it so Linda, many times. Linda Grant is looking at me with such such disdain. <laughs> I'm just being and disappointment. I've read ev- pretty much everything else that Orwell ever wrote. I mean, I've read all of the other yeah, shit novels, but not the hit. Uh, you know, Aspidist, keep the Aspidist uh, flying. You're too good. Like the before we got popular. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't read it. It's just I'd always felt it was sort of. John liked his early B sides, and then after he stopped, not that, much actually. Like, what I love, cool. everybody, what everybody loves of Orwell is the essays, yeah. which are beyond compare. But coming up for air, I keep like the coming up for air. Yeah, it's all right. Anyway, that's another podcast. But, but by the way, anyway, I'm just I saying like to talk about all you're well. talking about yeah. Stephen. So, brief history of time. I was challenged to read a brief history of time by a friend of mine uh, who I've known for thirty years. 
who said to me, who looked down a list of books that I was planning to read, and he said, but these are all fiction, Andy. These are all fiction. Why don't you read any nonfiction? I, I, my friend, he's a maths prodigy. He loves maths. And he said, you've got a brief history of time on here. And until he challenged me to read it, I, to be honest with you, although it was on my to-read list, I had no real plans to read it. But I thought, well, I'll give it, I'll give it a no, go. No real plans. No real plans to read it, yeah. <laughs> but I did read it, and uh, I found it quite tough going. Famously, Chewy, yeah, famously it's a book more started than finished, uh, isn't it? And I had to read several chapters three times, particularly the bits about quantum mechanics and imaginary numbers. But I did find it very enlightening, and it was really good to see how all those terms that you've heard of like black hole and event horizon and string theory really? and uncertainty principle, etc., fit together. Though, please don't ask me now on the spot to explain to you how they do fit together. Obviously, I can't do that. Because I, obviously, knowing you were reading it, I had to, I had to dig it up again. I've not read it. I'll be honest. Okay. I mean, I've read. Yeah, I've, I've skimmed it this week Has because it got thinner as well. I'm sure no, the version no. I had was about double. It's the actually fitness. no. It's actually got slightly longer. This is added a chapter. But this is a slightly, um, you know personal thing but do you remember that john gray did you remember the guy who used to run yeah. the waterstones in aberdeen he yes, was single-handedly responsible for making this book a bestseller he read it and he was i think a bit of a math geek and kind of went mental for it in aberdeen i mean bought like 200 copies and they all sold and then i mean it seems like the least likely word of mouth book <laughs> he could possibly imagine but that's sort of what it became and it, of course the problem with it is i mean it is I have to say, I found it weirdly less forbidding than I'd expected it to. Yeah. But I still, if you say to me string theory, I'm going to yeah. struggle to Want say. To sleep. <laughs> I'm going to struggle to say it succinctly and interestingly. Yes, yes. Although there was lots, there are lots of little, there are wonderful little moments in it, I think, as a just, you know, the whole black hole thing is so gorgeous. I, I realised that I'd like. Of a, of a universe that's sort of consuming itself. I love that. I realized and where does it go? Where does all the stuff go? Where is the universe? Where, where's the outside? <laughs> where, where all this stuff, where does it go when it's not in the universe? That's, I mean, which he kind of glosses over, let's be honest. I realized I'd like 40 years of prep <laughs> before reading this book because of most of the concepts were familiar to me via 40 years of reading Douglas Adams and watching Doctor Who yeah. and Star Trek and yeah. films called The Black Hole and yeah. Event Horizon. <laughs> And what I don't know about the general theory of relativity, I do make up for with a solid foundation in crappy 70s <laughs> and 80s sci-fi, right? And on that basis, the real revelation for me when reading A Brief History of Time was that I found a mistake. No, God. I found a mistake in A Brief History of Time, well, a, a book which has been in print for 25 years and has sold in excess of 10 million copies. Right. I am going to read copies. you. I am going to read you the erroneous passage, and I'm going to ask you to tell me what's wrong with it. Okay. Erroneous passage. Here we go. Coming up. The the other possible way to resolve the paradoxes of time travel might be called the alternative histories hypothesis. The idea here is that when time travelers go back to the past, they enter alternative histories which differ from recorded history. Thus, they can act freely without the constraint of consistency with their previous history. Steven Spielberg had fun with this notion in the Back to the Future oh. films. Marty McFly was able to go back and change his parents' courtship to a more satisfactory history. What, what is the, the schoolboy error there? It was directed by a person other than Steven Absolutely. Spielberg. Absolutely. Back to the Future was written and directed by right. Robert Zemeckis of and course. Bob Gale. Zemeckis, yeah. And so saying it's... And Steven Spielberg was involved. He was the executive producer, but it would be a bit like attributing the success of A Brief History of Time to the finance director of its publisher, Bantam Books, <laughs> rather than its author, Professor Stephen Hawking. And one of the other things I learned about A Brief History of Time is, while reading it is that Professor Hawking is not the kind of chap who would let an error like that go easily. Now, the first question that struck me is, why has nobody spotted that mistake? in A Brief History of Time over the last 25 years, which sold 10 million copies. Well, clearly, one, it's not what the book's about. And so uh, some might argue it doesn't matter. I wouldn't argue that. But some might say that. But secondly, also, it's on page 183, isn't it? <laughs> Quite near the end of the book, suggesting the end of the book has indeed not been read that frequently. And there's also in that paragraph a grammatical error in there, which suggests that even the proofreader 
didn't make it <laughs> as far as page 183 of A Brief History of Time. It's all circumstantial evidence. I can't prove it. Finally, the last thing I want to say about A Brief History of Time is I really loved Professor Hawking's author biography, presumably self-penned at the back of the book, really? which starts with the line, Stephen Hawking was born in Oxford in 1942, exactly 300 years after the death of Galileo. <laughs> Just pluck that fact out of the air. That's a bit like me saying Andy Miller was born in Croydon in 1968, six years after Marvel Comics published the first issue of The Incredible Hulk, as though it were just a naturally flowing fact. Is that true? It is true. I researched it. (laughs) And the point being, Professor Hawking, throughout the book, to his great credit, he's a very, very clever man, but he's very, (laughs) very keen to place himself in the lineage of Galileo, Newton, Einstein, and... Professor Hawking. You know what? I'm really pleased to have read it. It is very much a horrible phrase outside my comfort zone, but it is very much outside my comfort zone. And yet I did find... He does write really well. Yeah, he writes really well. And also it's good for your brain to be pushed a bit and struggle to get your head around things you wouldn't normally get your head around. So I'm very pleased to have read it. Okay, it's time now for an advert. Andy. Yes. You're on a desert island. Yep. And you have a choice between... A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking and Good Morning Midnight by Gene Rees. Which would you which would you go for? <laughs> I think it's obvious. <laughs> I think it's obvious to anyone listening that I and everyone gathered here would choose uh, Gene Rees, uh, including our guest today, Linda Grant. Hello, Linda. Hello. Thank you for coming in. Author of I novel- would not choose Gene Rees to be alone with Honor Desert. <laughs> Unless you brought something to drink. Uh, Linda, author of novels such as The Clothes on Their Back and most recently Upstairs at the Party, Um, as well as a short book, which I would just like to talk a little bit about first, called I Murdered My Library, which is an account of... Kindle Single. How you you disposed of a lifetime's worth of books, Mm -hmm. didn't you? I did. I moved to a flat which was half the size of the previous one, and... I didn't have room for all my books and I had to have a massive, painful, traumatic clear out. And one of the things which was uh, you, you imagine that, you, you know, you're building this library and that in your old age you will reread these books. And in fact, I, you know, I do reread. But when I got down off the shelf, my 1970s paperbacks of um, I had the complete works of Dickens, Penguin Editions, you open them, the pages sort of smelt, you know, of mm. cheap paper and bad ink, and they fell out because the glue had perished. And I couldn't read Brown. them because, yeah, and couldn't read them because the writing was too small, the typeface was too small. So, um, so I was sort of throwing them, throwing them, throwing them. And people asked me, you know, did you get, you know, do you send them to a book dealer? Nobody is interested. (laughs) Nobody is interested in 1970s paperbacks. You know, the next generation doesn't read. They're not interested. The book dealers are not interested. There were no first editions. There was nothing like that because I didn't buy first editions. I bought paperbacks. Mm. So it was very, very traumatic. But I have to say, um, my entire collection of Jean Rhys did some the cut and the one which I have in front of me is dated as we used to do rather pretentiously in those days <laughs> uh, August 1980 so that was when I was reading Jean Reese in the 70s late 70s you were saying to me a little bit earlier on that you read all of her novels mm, in in yeah. quick succession back then yeah White Sargasso Sea was published in the 60s I think and I remember they had that in the school library and that was the first time I'd heard of her and I read that and then they they republished Penguin republished all the Paris novels and I must have been in my late 20s when I and everybody else I know read all of Jean Rhys and I I've been trying to figure out why it was that in this kind of great feminist phase of our lives, we thought, <laughs> for reasons which are now completely opaque to me, that she was some kind of great feminist discovery, <laughs> because she is not. I, I mean, she's not she a sister, is, is she? she's not a sister. <laughs> I mean, she is the writer which I 
cherish, of 20th century writers, she is the writer I cherish the most. Having said that, I haven't actually reread her because, as the writer Susan Hill said, you can't read two in succession because you commit suicide. <laughs> but uh, I remember uh, reading them at the time and finding them indescribably painful because what they were actually telling you was we were in our 20s, it was the 70s, we were absolutely arrogantly self-confident in our ability to change the world, have as much sex as we wanted, <laughs> to smoke as much dope as we wanted, to do anything we wanted, to be anything we wanted. And then you have this series of, of very, very short novels about women who are 15, 20 years older than you, who are sitting in a room drinking themselves to death. And mm. it was, I think, the first intimation to us that we were not immortal, <laughs> that we were not young mm. and going to stay young forever. So it was, she was a, a kind of terrifying and corrosive and eye-opening read back then. And rereading her now, what struck me about her is that the, you know, I remember when I was reading her at the time thinking, why don't you get a job? You know, get a job. <laughs> Jean Reese heroine, you know, does not get a job if she can help it. She's so what she does the is... The most annoying girl you've she's, ever met. She sits in... I just, that's the thing I was reading Goodnight Midnight, which I've never read before, which is brilliant. Is Good morning, Midnight. <laughs> <laughs> But it's that thing of, oh my God, just, 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 you're so smart and you're so beautiful and you're so difficult. Just be less difficult. Can sure. I just, can I just give, do a quick recap yeah. of Jean Reese's life? Because it's germane to what we're talking about, clearly. Jean Reese, born 1890 in Dominica in the West Indies, died 1979 in Devon, England, aged 88. Published a book of short stories in 1927 called The Left Bank with a big introduction from her editor and lover, Ford Maddox Ford. And then she, in the late 20s into the late 30s, she published four novels, Postures, uh, which became Quartet subsequently. In 1931, after leaving Mr. Mackenzie, 1934, Voyage in the Dark, 1939, Good Morning, Midnight. Each of those novels in commercial terms was progressively less successful than the previous one. And after the publication of Good Morning Midnight, which kind of disappeared, so did Jean Rhys. And for many years, it was believed that many people thought that she was dead. She moved to uh, Devon and vanished, and uh, her books all fell out of print. And... Um, in 1955, she, in 19, from 1955 to 1960, she lived in Bude in Cornwall, which she referred to in letters as Bude the Obscure. <laughs> and, uh, and then she moved to a village in Devon called Sheraton Fitzpayne, which she described as, quote, a dull spot which even drink can't enliven much. And while she was living there, she was accused of being a witch and was shunned by most of the village. <laughs> I found this quote from the chairman of the Cheriton Fitzpayne Parish Council, who in 2010 was asked how he felt about Jean referring to Cheriton Fitzpayne as a dull spot, which even drink can't enliven much. And he responded by saying, there's always something going on. It's exceptionally friendly. There's football, cricket, darts and skittles. There's a drama club, a WI and a church. He added, we barely knew Jean because she kept herself to herself quite a lot. <laughs> um, so, so she basically, she's languishing in obscurity for many, many years. And then thanks to uh, Frances Wyndham and Diana Athill, yeah. they coax the novel Wide Sargasso Sea out of her, which she spends years writing, 17, maybe even 20 years. And um, we have a little clip here of... Jean Rees being interviewed at the end of her life after she had finally achieved great success with Wide Sargasso Sea, which won prizes and is widely agreed to be a classic. 
And here she is talking, I think, in her interview with the Paris Review, talking a little bit about how it felt to write and live the life of a writer. When I was excited about life, I didn't want to write at all. I've never written about being happy, never. I didn't want to. Besides, I don't think you can describe being happy. I've never had a long period of being happy. Do you think anybody has? I think I think you can be peaceful for quite a long time. But to be happy is, is different, isn't it? And that's a bit rare. I can't have feeling. But then altogether, I, I, I think, well, I think if I had to choose, I'd rather be happy than right. <laughs> if I had my life all over again and could choose. I'm just going to read now the synopsis on the back uh, cover of Linda's <laughs> Coffee of Good Morning Midnight. Can anyone imagine this getting through a marketing meeting That's today? Good. Here we That's go. Good. Here we go. This is so you, you, you're in the station bookstore. You're looking for something to read. Here we go. Back in Paris for a quiet, sane fortnight, Sasha Jensen has just been rescued by a friend from drinking herself to death in a Bloomsbury bedsitter. Despite a transformation act, new clothes, and a blonde Sondre hair dye, Sasha still feels, quote, not quite as good as new, unquote. Streets, shops, and bars vividly evoke her Paris past. Feckless husband Enno, her dead baby, sundry humiliations in abject jobs. One night, a gigolo mistakes Sasha for a rich woman. She still has her fur coat, and their subsequent liaison somehow distills the essence of all that has gone before. I mean... <laughs> The thing is, that makes this book is genius. sound relentlessly miserable. I don't think it is relentlessly miserable, is it, Linda? Um, <laughs> it's quite funny. Um, yeah, it is. It In is a quite, dark way. Uh, yes, it, it is. I mean, the thing about the Jean Rhys heroine of those Paris novels is they're all kind of pretty much the same. They get progressively older. And um, I, I remember thinking when I was reading them, they were a bit like what would happen if Jane Austen characters were sort of suddenly moved forwards into the, the 20th century and were trying to survive economically. And That's so brilliant. We, we, and what happens to these, to the Jean Rhys character? And there's something I really... The Jean Rhys characters in all these novels, we might think of them as being autobiographical. None of them are artists. There is yeah. no sense whatsoever that any of these people write. are writers. Yeah. They are not writers. They're women who have fallen off the edge of what is the life that women are supposed to lead. So what they do is... They sit in a bedsit waiting for an ex-lover to send them a cheque mm. so they can go and buy a dress to be presentable enough to go and sit in a cafe to be picked up by a man who will support them financially. Mm -hmm. So they live in this kind of world of incredible economic precariousness mm. and because, you know, there's no sense of these women having any form of career, which is, I think, why we found it so strange in the 70s as young feminists. But what they do is, because of the dependence on men, the jobs, the only jobs they could get are kind of, you know, jobs in a cafe, jobs in a shop. And she hasn't got, mm. she, she can't pull it off. She hasn't got the kind of work ethic. So, of course, what happens every single time is prostitution. Mm -hmm. And... So the great insight about these novels is how women can fall into prostitution because of this, you know, this mm -hmm. world of dependence of mm -hmm. men. And they're terrifying, absolutely terrifying. But also, sorry, I'm, you, you wound me up and I'm going here. No, it's, it's, got, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Okay. Well, what every Jane, Jean Rhys heroine is absolute heroine character is absolutely obsessed with is clothes, right? Mm. Clothes are 
utterly important. Yeah. So she spends this money on having this blonde, cendre, ash blonde yeah, hair. Yeah. She's got a mink. She's always talking about her necessity for clothes. But there is this sense of, of these women being absolutely flayed. She lives for this world of, of, you know, the feminine, the kind of, you know, the female stereotype. And beneath it, there is this, this always a strong sense of not fitting in. And there's a little passage here in which she says, this is my attitude to life. Please, please, Monsieur, Madame, Mr, Mrs and Miss, I'm trying so hard to be like you. Mm. I know I don't succeed, but look how hard I try. Three hours to choose a hat. Every morning, an hour and a half trying to make myself look like everybody else. Every word I say has chains around its ankles. Every thought I think is weighted with heavy weights. It's absolutely extraordinary stuff. I know I don't succeed, but look how hard I try. I mean, that's one of the things that I think is incredible about her writing, incredible Mm. about this book, is how quotable it is. I wrote down some of the quotes here. I'll just read a couple of them here. A room is a place where you hide from the wolves outside, and that's all any room is. And one day the fierce wolf that walks by my side will spring on you and rip your abominable guts out. And I no longer wish to be loved, beautiful, happy or successful. I want one thing and one thing only, to be left alone. Oh, it's so beautiful it and good. kind of self-dramatizing, but but I, I would like to. The only thing I'm going to respond to what Linda was saying slightly is that although the characters, the Jean Reese character, as we call her, although they aren't writers, their occupations are things that Jean Reese did. Yes, yeah, you know, sure. they, mannequin, yeah. mannequin, yeah. Uh, showgirl, yeah. a prostitute. And there's a, Jean Reese did all that those wonderful things. scene early in the book where she gets sacked for you know yeah. basically just. Being herself, you know, it's just... Well, being herself, and this is the thing that Jean said. She specifically said uh, in an interview, I write about myself because that's all I really know. So the the writing is extracted, I agree, but Mm. the the interiority, horrible word again, Mm. I apologise, but the the interiority of those Mm. characters, they're all Jean, aren't they? Yes, I think they are all... The interiority of them is all Jean, um, but, you know, I think so many, you know, I think that so many writers would have done this as I am a frustrated artist, mm. you know, and she doesn't do that at all. I mean, I think that one of the, the, the important aspects of her is the fact that she came from this very, very strange background, which is as an Anglo in the Caribbean. Yeah. So when you read White Sock Asset she's actually racist, but she mm. comes to um, Europe and she experiences the coldness, the coldness of the climate, but also the coldness of the people. But she doesn't really belong in the Caribbean. And she she feels that she doesn't belong in the yeah. Caribbean, but she doesn't belong here either. And so this powerful sense of alienation is running through absolutely everything. And in a way, she's alienated from the human race. She's And what she wants is love. She yeah, wants to be loved. She just, that is all she wants. That's the thing for me that made, I mean, not having read her before, it's a total revelation. And I'm, mm. I'm, it's just every, you know, I, I, I'm going to read them all now because I just want that voice. And there's just little, just little things is that I've never read anyone who captures that sense of the desire for self-improvement mm. and at the same time the undermining of that. You know, mm. it's like she, she's, mm. so there's a, I love this. The thing is, to have a programme, not to leave anything to chance, no gaps, no trailing around aimlessly with cheap gramophone records starting up in your head, no, here this happened, here that happened. Above all, no crying in public, no crying at all if you can help it. Mm. And, of course, the book is basically just punctuated with her crying at various I mean, it, there's something wonderful about that sense of being inside somebody's head and you know that she doesn't want to do... I've never really quite read anyone who's done that interior she's monologue like she's as talk, believably. It's like somebody talking to themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. one of the wonderful really things about, yeah. the, about, yes. about the book. And also that she has a kind of, you know, why do such terrible things happen? Answer, because I expect, create and deserve them. Yeah. She, want, she can't be free of her own sense of anger, 
self-persecution mm. but kind of despair but humor at the despair but it's a kind of goes round and round no you know instinct for self-preservation she has no instinct for self-preservation, self-preservation no. whatsoever mm. you know there is no common sense there there's never any common sense she's reckless I mean, she buys a painting when she hasn't got any money. She gives yeah. the gigolo, you know, her money. She She's crazy. You know, she's crazy and you want to give her a shake. But, <laughs> isn't it an amazing thing is that somehow yeah. you care about the journey? I mean, it's like, oh. I, I, you know, you think, well, who is this? It ought to be depressing, but it isn't in some because the the language is so precise and the and the, and the yes the the language the, the, is incredibly spare. We should say that. Yes, you know I that. want to talk about the, the language. Here we go. Here. I have no pride, no pride, no name, no face, no country. I don't belong anywhere. Too sad, too sad. It doesn't matter. There I am, like one of those straws, which floats around the edge of a whirlpool and is gradually sucked into the centre the dead centre, where everything is stagnant and everything is calm. That's that beautiful. It's just That's so great. Punch the air, brilliant, yeah. isn't it? It's yeah. just for that sense of somebody whose life who's, she doesn't, there's, there's no volition there. Linda, you were going to say about the style in which she writes is incredibly um, pared back and it's, restrained. It's very it? pared back. It, it's very simple. There are no linguistic fireworks going on there at all there's not a great deal of there is some descriptive writing but she does <laughs> something she does something which i find i'm i'm you can't i can't understand what it is she's doing because you read page 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 and then she says there's one sentence and your stomach flips and you think mm. she has mm. prepared the mm. ground mm. here absolutely Pages and pages have prepared you for one sentence, which is not doing anything showy or flashy, but it's like a punch to the stomach. I um, like, I, I, I take it round the wrist of the dead baby. Oh, oh yeah. I would like to say that I, I, my experience of reading these books is obviously very different to Linda's because I, Jean Reese is my favourite writer that I've discovered in the last ten years. I, I read White Sog Assoc about ten years ago, and I thought it was. Fantastic, fantastic novel. It's a classic, as I said earlier. But several years after that, I then I think I read After Leaving Mr. Mackenzie. And shortly after reading After Leaving Mr. Mackenzie, I read a book of short stories, Tigers Are Better Looking. Tigers Are Better Looking, currently out of print. Penguin Books, if you're listening, bring it back. And I felt a very strong sense, oh, oh, this is this is like all those... Graham Greene yeah. and Patrick Hamilton books yeah, that yeah. I've read and loved. But wait a minute, it's and Malcolm Lowry, but wait a minute, it's it's written in the 1930s, they're written by a woman, and the literary quality of them, with all due respect to three of my favourite authors, Greene, <laughs> lots of Lowry, and most of Hamilton, the sheer literary quality in the way that Linda was just talking about is way above that. Yeah. I struggle to see... I mean, and I say that reading them here in the 21st century, they seem incredibly modern to me and the sensibility seems very modern. They must have been perplexing in the extreme Insane. in the I mean, 1930s. Imagine, if you're reading this in 1939, it's yeah. seen, I, I have to say, again, pleasure, the pleasure thing about reading is to find a voice that is that mm. absolutely clear. I mean, mm. it, it's so rare. I mean, mm. you know, you're not, I, I, I think now I could pick up a book randomly by anybody uh and and spotted gene reese i mean it's mm. that's she's that good and that quick at, at getting that sensibility linda you were saying um on twitter uh, uh, you said a brilliant thing about <laughs> what it's like to read gene reese now yes well if what you demand from fiction yeah which is now heavily demanded from Amazon reviews and Goodreads reviews, and particularly good group book groups, is likable characters. You are not going to find any likable characters in Jean Reese, <laughs> and you know, as such, there is no one more bracingly, literally <laughs> not, serious. Not, not relatable, isn't it? <laughs> not you want no, that sort not, of li- like, but with certain with not, serious yeah. misgivings. I mean, sort yeah, of like, uh... yeah, not relatable. Um, <laughs> not relatable at all. You know. Know, this demand to soften the novel by requiring 
requiring that it be likable yeah. characters. And this is an even worse expression that I can root for. Um, <laughs> you know, which is apparently a phrase which which originates with Kurt Vonnegut, which I can never forgive him for. I only found this out quite recently. Meant it quite as... Well, apparently he had some rules for writing, yes, and one yeah, of them yeah, was character. Right. And there must be at least one character that you can root for. I mean, are we rooting well, for Sasha? I mean, not really. You're not really rooting. You're just looking with your hands slightly yes, over your yes, eyes, yes, going, absolutely. "Oh my god, I'm watching a car crash." But the truthfulness of it—that's the thing. Tr- it's right. truthful. Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely truthful. Matthew um, and I had a water cooler conversation earlier in the week, and he said, "Pretty fucking depressing." <laughs> <laughs> hey, Linda, so did you? You said you hadn't reread this book no, since the seventies. Yeah, was it as good as you remembered it? Was it better than you remembered it? I think that it didn't have the the effect on me that it had when I was in my 20s, which was entirely a personal subjective one, Mm. which was terror, right? Because I think that... I think that when I was in my 20s, there were these, you know, you probably they probably exist less now, but sort of middle-aged women living in a bedsit on limited means, you know, who would be, you know, hitting the ceiling with a, you know, the broom handle to tell you to keep quiet, you know, the, these <laughs> women oh, yeah. who sort of spinsterish women that you all completely bed-sit, terrified yeah. of being bedsit land. Yeah. And, you know, this is cockroaches, you know, poverty, all of that kind of thing. And I think we saw this kind of abyss, you know, this kind of gulf of horror that, you know, possibly, and, you you know, you get to the age, you're like, oh, that's all right, I'm okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> we're out, we're out. We're um, out the other side. Yeah, we're out the other side of that. Um, but I I think that rereading it it uh, rereading her 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 style is so extraordinary i remember having a conversation with a publisher who was very taken aback when i said that i thought that jean reese was one of the great writers of the 20th century and he said slightly sneeringly he said well i put her on the par with evelyn war and oh. yeah yeah i mean i love evelyn war mm. and you know but this woman is doing something yeah. so far beyond, yeah, yeah. you know, what War was doing, even though I like him very much. I can see some of the similarities, you know, particularly in those early novels. But these are not social novels. I think that, you know, the pain of reading her has subsided. Mm. Um, and I now think to myself, how is she being read by people who are coming at her for the first time? And now I find out. Mm, mm, mm. I would like to make a, just a very quick uh, uh, mention for a, a book that was recommended to me by Eric Anderson at Lonesome Reader yeah. called Difficult Women mm. by David Plant, which is a memoir of working with, in reverse order, Jermaine Greer, Sonia Orwell and Jean Rees. Jesus Christ. And the, the, the description that? of ministering to Jean's requirements in her 80s while attempting to coax her autobiography out of her is one of the most (laughs) hair-raising reads imaginable. And that sense of what it must have been like to be Jean Reese at that stage is very brilliantly communicated there, which which brings us, the the being Jean Reese brings us to, to, at last, Mr. Matthew Clayton. with a tenuous link. Tenuous link. Well, I was uh, was thinking about that. I was thinking about our connection to her and um, how we kind of bring her back to life. And I was, when I was reading the book, I was interested to discover, uh, uh, Linda, you talked earlier about the hats and the clothes, and there's also perfumes mentioned. Yeah, Le Bleu. Um, which was the perfume that the main character wears and is also the perfume that was uh, Jean's favourite perfume. And I was um, amazed to discover that it's still being manufactured. So I went to Debenhams at lunchtime and I've got in this bag... (laughs) I went in there and kind of embarrassed myself by um, going to the kind of tester thing and getting some... going and asking if they had Le Heur Bleu, and they did... So I've no. got some here, so I thought we oh, could all... Brilliant, um, brilliant. I, I've, I've got some for us all to smell. And I thought, Andy, maybe you could start by smelling the glove, smell the glove. 
It's just something I've always Spinal wanted to Spinal Tap, thank you very much. So it's, yes. on my, it, it's on here. It's and on maybe the, it's on the glove. And, yeah, it's on the glove. you actually produce a bottle. It costs 80 quid, Linda. Yeah, I know. So you sprayed the gloves. I sprayed the gloves. What do you think it smells like? Can you smell it? Describe it. Well, to me, it smells of Mr. Sheen. Yeah. If that's what, if that's what, Mr. Gene. I'm not really a. How would you describe it? I can give you the manufacturer's description. Go on. So it's described as it opens with a spicy, sweet aniseed note that leads into rose, carnation, violet. The soft and powery floral notes rest on a bed of vanilla. (laughs) Do they? Yeah, do they? Yeah. Yeah. And it's supposed to evoke. Is this the perfume that? That, the Jean wore. That, and that, that Sasha wore in the book. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. And the, um... Just mix that smell with some perno. Yeah, you have the smell. I mean, can we just say that very few people have ever written better about drink ever? Yeah. I mean, she's just, she's really out there. I love this, this great amazing, passage. Actually. Yeah. I have an irresistible longing for a long, strong drink to make me forget that once again I have given damnable human beings the right to pity me and laugh at me. Yes. Isn't that, isn't that I, brilliant? That's every time I've ever been in a bar ever. Damnable human the, beings. Um, and, and the book is, the book's, you know, you can buy, obviously you can buy the book and the perfume on Amazon. Okay. <laughs> Which do you think has the highest customer rating? No, the book on. or the perfume? Oh, it the must book, be the perfume. The perfume. So, Linda, you're going for the book. the book. Andy, you're going for perfume. Well, I have to go for the perfume, obviously. Well, it's actually um, the book. Yes. You're right. oh, really? the, the book was 4.4. Yeah. The oh. perfume, only 4.1. Well, that's, that's because... <laughs> statistically it's, accurate. That's statistically and that's because it's a perfume which is dated... If you see what I mean, it's it's, it's very old, old lady. It it's, smells it's very old, old ladies. It, it, the thing about the thing about perfume, if you're a woman, um, is you yeah, have no, to great. be. You have to. Men don't like what they perceive to be old lady perfume. perfume. And I remember I had just come from um, a perfumier who, and I had two two cents, one in each hand, and I was at the hairdressers, and I said to the hairdresser, male. Which one do you like? And he said, don't like that one, it's old lady. Yeah. Mm. Um, so m- contemporary men don't like strong scents. Interesting. Strong, complex Matthew, scents. Matthew, are, are those your gloves or just find them in the, <laughs> in the um, Debenham? I do love scrubber gloves. I'm afraid they're my gloves. <laughs> now you're smelling of Jean Reese on my yeah. cycle home. Can I tell you one thing that my QI research threw up many years ago, which is extraordinary, is that they they did a, they tested a lot of um, chemicals on sperm, and the main chemical that's in Lily of the Valley, they discovered, made sperm swim three times as fast mm. as any other. So, you know, your kind of grandma's nicotrols that used to have those. Mm. I don't think they have them now, but you'd have Lily of the Valley sachets in your in your drawers. Possibly all, all worked out for the best. It's, it's, um... the, I mean, the final thing about the perfume, I think, is maybe one of the reasons why she loved it so much is the stopper of the perfume is a hollow heart. Oh, there oh, it is. Beautifully oh, done. Very good. Tenuous, but so, yeah. so, so, <laughs> That's so very perfect. nice. Well, thanks for uh, listening. Thank you, Linda. Thank you for coming to talk about Jean Rees. Thank you, Matthew, for your tireless research and your, and your ability to go into Debenhams and, uh, and, smell, the and smell the glove. Uh, thank you, John. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, if you've got something you want to contribute to uh, Batlisted, you can get in touch with us via Facebook. We're on Twitter at BatlistedPod. Uh, and we'll see you soon in a fortnight. Thanks very much. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.